0: Good afternoon, everyone. I'm Mark Kramer. I'm the host of The Best Business Minds. Thank you for coming out uh, this afternoon to listen to uh, my interview with Elisa Carpenter. Uh, before we introduce Elisa uh, to all of you and talk about her book, How to Listen and How to Be Heard, I'd like to introduce you to our two sponsors, uh, Matt Butler.
1: Thanks, Mark. Good afternoon, everyone. 25 years in leadership roles in Fortune 500 companies, I came to realize the same three things were the the root of all business problems, and that's lack of collaboration, lack of understanding about how things really work, and lack of investment dollars, which lead to shortcuts and workarounds. So I created my methodology to eliminate those three problems. The way we do that is we create a visual image of your process like you've never seen before. Once we have that, it becomes very easy to get everyone on the same page as to what the problems really are. And if you can understand how your processes are causing your problems, solutions, and just as importantly, priorities become obvious. So if you'd like to learn more about how to reduce stress while increasing profitability,
0: give us a call. Thanks. Thanks, Matt. John Custer. Thank you, Mark. And hello, everyone. I'm a partner in Custer & Custer. A family owned law firm outside Philadelphia. We work with entrepreneurs and family owned businesses ranging in size from startups to lower middle market. Custer and Custer works with matters from incorporations, intellectual property, buy sell agreements to vendor contracts and buying and selling businesses. There's no cost to tell us your problem. And depending on the project, we can quote you a flat rate. So please feel free to contact us with any questions at CusterandCuster.com. Thank you so much, Matt and John, thank you. So Alisa, I've been really excited to have you on after reading your book because uh, I have a consulting practice in family business and I also work with entrepreneurs and I work with them at all ages. And uh, this book I think was extremely important, especially today. So first, before we get started with your book, could you please tell us about your consultancy and how you got started?
1: Sure, and thank you so much, Mark, for having me. Um, So it's interesting, my background is in higher education, so I worked in colleges and universities for about 13 years on the administrative end. Never thought I would own a business, never thought this um, would be the space I very much enjoyed working with students and working in higher ed. But I noticed a few things. One, my business name is Everything's Not Okay, and that's okay. Mm -hmm. And that's because I would even see students seeing, you know, talking with their friends in the hallway and saying life is great, this is awesome, I see colleagues do the same thing. And then either coming to my office or talking to someone else and like just breaking down, right? This concept of we have the space that everything's fine when it truthfully is really not. Um, And that's how my business started, um, evolved really from working with young professionals and helping them get in the workforce. And organizations started to reach out to me in order to figure out how can I recruit, retain, and engage my young professionals. So now I work a lot with companies and organizations to help them create more inclusive spaces among generations and geography and virtual spaces and race, ethnicity, and gender, and helping people really bridge and and break through those barriers.
0: So why did you write this book?
1: It's been something I've been passionate about for a really long time and growing up I did what that was. Um, I inherently and I've, I've taken the StrengthsFinder assessment, I use that in a lot of my work, my number one talent is Includer and I never thought about it in the grand scheme of things in terms of how I work with people but my business is really revolving around that and this book brings to life. And I wanted people to realize and recognize that at any level within the organization or at an entrepreneur, you can be inclusive. You can have these difficult conversations. You can make a difference. And I wanted to create something that was above and beyond research. It wasn't just a, this is a hypothetical way we could do it. That these are strategies and tactics that you can take with you and implement.
0: So before we get into the book, we should be very current about what's going on here. And uh, the upheaval in the country related to the murder of George Floyd, uh, which has set off, not just in this country, but around the world. The screaming of Amy Cooper uh, for concern for a black man attacking her and the murder of Ahmaud Aubrey, has uh, literally caused a firestorm throughout the world. How should uh, companies communicate their feelings about this with employees? And how should they let employees express their feelings? And how should older employees craft their comments So not to offend, but encourage proper dialogue.
1: Yeah, this is a great question and a difficult one to give you a straight answer across the board. This is what everybody should do. What I noticed was going incorrect and I cannot compare COVID-19 to what's happening now, but we were just getting inundated with emails of now we care about you. We care about your safety. We care about your health from companies and organizations that you didn't hear from before. It's so important as you kind of craft and create these messages to think about and talk with other people who think and who act and who experience life differently from you. Being very transparent as a white professional, me to put out a message and not consult or talk with any people of color within the organization or anybody who might think differently, what do you think about this message? How does this portray, what am I missing? I've seen in, unfortunately in Montgomery County, the commissioner, it was just put out there, this message of just complete racism. And it's very, very important to create those spaces where employees feel comfortable having these conversations, but this is not something that's going to happen overnight and where most of us are still working virtually. So if we haven't created these spaces before to have these conversations, we have to start easing into these conversations now. We can't say, we didn't really care before, but now tell me all of your feelings. What are you, you know, what is happening in the world? What are these situations and asking people, how are you feeling um, to a black person is just what, what do you mean? How am I feeling? How are you? This has been going on their whole life for over 400 years. And, you know, now it's being brought to a head where a lot of people are really stepping up and being allies. So it's, it's creating this new, new space, new voices.
0: Uh, And apparently all sides have to be good listeners here, right? Because a lot of people don't always agree with the other side's messaging on on this. Like Drew Brees, the quarterback of the Saints, he is supportive of the cause, but not supportive of the taking the knee. And so they have to have that open dialogue. And and that's one of the things that you would encourage them to do.
1: And yes. And even thinking about your social channels and things that you have as a professional, I... I'm interested in hearing different voices and different perspectives and opinions. And you know, surrounding yourself and being in that echo chamber isn't going to make the situation any better. Hearing what people have to say and truly hearing until they finish their statement, end of sentence, and then having this open dialogue is really, is very, very crucial right now.
0: So I, I really enjoyed your book because anymore, uh, every company is multi-generational. Uh, uh, whether it's family business or non-family businesses, and they're all multicultural, there's almost a new place you can go. Because even if you're in a place where there isn't a lot of diversity, now you're working with people from around the world that didn't happen, uh, let's say 25 years ago, but now it happens on a daily basis. So one of the things I wanted to know is how do you identify strengths in yourselves and present them in a way that others will value and be able to come across as a fair and authentic person?
1: Yeah, Um, well thinking about diversity and diversity is a general umbrella term that could be race, ethnicity, and gender, and generation, and geography. It is so many different things and before kind of the the COVID crisis we were also still working in a very virtual or remote workspace so you're having people from all over the world and, and cultural differences and time zones. When we're talking about strengths there are easy ways to identify them by taking Let's say my favorite is the StrengthsFinder assessment, and you can get your top five or all 34 in order of what are your strengths and talents and start having conversations with those. Um, Typically, and that'll give you the words and phrases to use. Are you a relationship builder? Are you an influencer, strategic thinker, an executor? Where are you in that spectrum? But asking people also is very valuable because that that age-old question of what are your strengths is very, very hard for people to internalize. So asking other people, what are experiences that I really excelled at? What are opportunities where you've really lost track of time? You're doing your work and you realize, oh my goodness, it's 4 o'clock in the afternoon. How did that happen? Or projects or assignments that you're passionate about. Really do some reflection in yourself. And if you're unsure, you know, ask people, what are some things that you typically rely on me for or questions that you ask? And then you're able to use that and use that information and knowledge to be able to share that with your colleagues, with your supervisors, to get more projects in line with that. It helps them. We want people who can do things quicker, faster, and more efficiently.
0: How do you identify strengths in others? And uh, who should just, how do you get started working with that? Because I think a lot of times, you know, we're so focused on ourselves, and especially as leaders, that we really don't look on how to bring out the strengths in others. So how do you do that?
1: I think one, we could even easily go back to an assessment, but look at projects or assignments or tasks or conversations people have done really well. Um, When you're thinking about even inclusion in general, who's that person that's always bringing somebody else into the mix or really challenging that status quo. Who's that person or group of people that really follow through and execute projects? Who's thinking plans A, B, C, D? You know, thinking about the deliverables that people create, the projects that they're working towards and things that you tend to rely on people for. Like who's your person that you ask these questions for? Who's this person that you ask? Now, keep in mind, we, want, we don't want to always go to that same person, right? That just helps you to easily identify what somebody excels at and what they might be able to continue to work on.
0: Uh, how value are, valuable are these assessments? You've mentioned it twice already. And how accurate are they and how much did you rely on them?
1: I mean, there's a bazillion assessments out there, right? We have StrengthsFinders and MBTI and DISC and Hogan and, and all these assessments. It's... You know, some of them, they're not really meant for um, using them as a hiring or recruitment tool. So if you're saying, okay, we don't have any executors here. Really taking StrengthsFinder isn't going to help you find that executor to put onto your team, right? So I want to make that very clear. There are um, some assessments that you can use for that. I think what's great about it is sometimes it's very hard to internalize. What am I good at? What do people need from me? What can I bring to the organization? We're not able to find those words and it creates this common language within the organization. So people say, Oh, this person's an includer or they're a communicator or they're strategic. When we have those words, we can start to have those conversations. If we're all coming from different places and not understanding what these strengths mean or what people bring to the table, it makes it a little bit more difficult. So I think at the baseline, if you're thinking about something, they're low cost, it's about $20 a person to take the assessment. Start then having the conversations and then go a little bit deeper from there.
0: And- how do you define generations? You talk about this, in the book, but what's the of it, uh, definition of generations? And by the way, if you hear barking in the back, it's my English bulldog Roxy, as she's hearing somebody vacuum outside.
1: <laughs> no, no, protective. I have a puppy and two kids, so if you hear them, <laughs> what's yeah. going on here? Um so there are five generations in the workforce. The traditionalists are not typically seen for the most part within the workforce, except for coming in and consulting work and things very, very rarely. So there's baby boomers typically, and I use the Gallup year range. So baby boomers are 1946 to 1964. uh, Then we have the Gen Xers, 1965 uh, to 1980, millennials, 1980 to 1996, uh, and Gen Z, 1996 to 2010. And then after that is where my kids fall. And right now it's called Gen Alpha. So after really 2010. Now, the, the reason why, and these are just birth years, right? We have people in between generations. I technically would be an Xennial, which is 1977 to 1983, because they're so broad, right? So many things change in terms of technology within that time that they've even defined smaller generations within like the in-betweeners.
0: Well, I, I, I'm depressed just listening to that <laughs> range because I, I hear like I'm a boomer at the very end when I'm thinking I'm like Generation Z uh, when I think about stuff. Uh, you would be an
1: in-betweener or a Joneser. So there are other names for that, too.
0: That's what I hope for. Um, how, do you, how do you get different generations to respect each other, uh, each other's knowledge and skills for the common good? I mean, I think you know older people feel like I've been there, done that, I know more, and the younger people feel like you're kind of out of touch with reality, uh, hence how people even feel what's going on right now with the protests.
1: Yeah. One of the, my favorite ways is through reverse mentoring. So it's pairing up. So when you would typically think about a mentor relationship, you have the mentor who would usually be a baby boomer, or somebody who has a lot of knowledge and experience in a particular area, being the mentor and the mentee, really somebody newer in the organization, potentially of a younger generation. Reverse mentorship is when you have both parties working together and it's a mutually beneficial partnership. And a lot of it at the end of the day is we have the same goals. We want our organization to do well. We as professionals really want to do well. We just go about it and communicate it a little bit differently. So, you know, millennials think and Gen Z, we have a lot of experience and different knowledge and different areas. It's just in different spaces, potentially, than Gen Xers and baby boomers have. So it's a lot of, you know, contention when you're talking about work ethic, who's working nine to five and who's working on off, off hours. A lot of it is getting clear on expectations, communication, and potentially pairing people up for reverse mentoring to learn from one another.
0: I also think that uh, being someone older, when I work with someone younger, they're seeing it through a fresh pair of eyes and something that I might discount, they don't discount it because things have changed and, and it's good to get it, let them run with the ball. But at the same oh, time yeah. for the younger yeah. people, it's probably a good idea For them to ask have they ever fit an older person have you ever faced this situation and how did you go deal with it
1: and you have so much experience institutional knowledge you know working with you have access to meetings and resources that they wouldn't have and i've seen a lot of people a lot of my clients well a baby boomer will go up to a gen z uh, or millennial and say can you put a couple apps on my phone i want to check these things out what are the new like TikTok? what are some new apps that i should be looking at that maybe our clients are using so having that that conversation it, it's helpful um, on both parties.
0: I love the movie uh, with Robert De Niro. I think it's called The Intern. Yes. Yeah, yeah. And I think that's a great thing that fits well with, uh, well with your book. Um, you wrote about offending, uh, offending different generations by how you communicated with them. Is there a best way to communicate with each generation, boomer through Generation Z?
1: And I don't think it's necessarily offending people per se, and that would be more of a a difficult conversation. I don't think it's the platform you're using is necessarily offending people, Um, but when we think about communication, it's a one-way conversation unless the other person chooses to respond, especially with text and email and written communication. So even asking people what is the best way to communicate with you on a daily basis? What is the best way to communicate with you for emergency situations. Because if we're constantly, and we typically do, and I know I've done it myself and continue sometimes, if I'm an email person or a text person and I'm gonna email or text you and you're a phone or in-person person, person, you might not get that message because that's not the way you choose to receive the information. So just asking people how they receive those messages. I mean, in in general, typically I would say baby boomers are looking for more structure. You know, you see those 30-minute meetings, you see see those 60-minute meetings, Gen Z, Millennials, it's that instant, you know, how can I text you? Can I IM you? What are other ways to do that? So getting pretty clear within your team of what needs to be done in which way. If we need to hold each other accountable because we're billing our clients and we need to know how many hours we're doing that, maybe that's an email versus a text conversation so we can have that in writing.
0: Is it important for older leaders to kind of like know the music, gaming, and other interests to develop a rapport with younger? Uh, younger employees, I mean, and still come again, that word authentic come across as real and that's why you're doing this because hey, you really wanna to get to know them and, and you're trying to learn the culture that they value.
1: Yeah, I think it works, it's both ways, right? It's interesting, my background is in higher education. I started working in colleges, I was 22. At the time, some students were older than I was and I can understand what they were going through it was in that same spot, but I Alisa, kept getting-
0: yes. you could slow down just a bit uh, some of our folks are writing in saying, hey, if she could slow down just a bit sure. on her responses, that would be great.
1: Sure. So working in higher education, I was 22. Um, and in that space, I was about the same age as the college students. And I kept getting older. And college students are pretty typically between 18 to 22. So at first, I could relate to what they were saying and what was cool, pop culture. And then I went in my 30s, had kids. And I couldn't relate anymore. Um, so it was really important for me to ask questions. What are the things that you're interested in? What are podcasts that you're listening to? What are, do you read newspapers or where do you get your content? But I think it also goes both ways, right? About institutional knowledge and gaining that information. We need to ask one another where they are. And once we do, it's more of an equal playing field for both parties, right? You're saying, where are you getting your information? Where are you getting your knowledge? And you can all bring that to the table versus just using those resources that you have, um, regardless of what, what generation or what level that you're in.
0: I, I my daughter has a global marketing practice, my oldest, Arielle, and I always ask her, even though I'm a marketer, I always ask her for input. Like right now I'm looking to convert this also into a podcast and she knows way more about podcasting than I do. And she said, dad, just let me run with the ball. Uh, but I also told her, I want you to run with the ball, but I also want to learn something new. I mean, this whole time I've learned Zoom and created this show and I found it was a good learn- learning experience. But clearly the younger fo- folks typically know more about technology than we do because they've embraced it quicker, uh, for sure. Uh, you mentioned that the younger generation's attention span are 12 and eight seconds. So how do you get a point across or a recommendation that requires a greater explanation?
1: Yeah, it's... It is tough, right? So our attention span, Millennial Gen Z, is very comparable to a goldfish. And you'll hear that a lot um, from a lot of different sources and speakers. But we can also binge watch hours and hours of Netflix or Hulu or a show that we're on. So half of it is about the attention span and knowing how quickly we tune out. And the other half is providing valuable content, information, and knowledge during that time, if you are providing that, if you're providing great content for people to consume, they will be there, right? They will listen and they will hear. Um, Gen Z, I talk a lot about infotainment. So it's really combining not just the stale information, the static resource, but creating it in a way, whether it's a 60 to 90 second video of how to do something, of how to turn on Zoom, how to show your camera, whatever the case may be, um, creating that in a way that's fun Um, that's new, that's different. So it's, yes, we have a short attention span, but we're willing to listen if it's interesting and provided in a way um, that's consumable.
0: Uh, What are microaggressions? Uh, You talk about that in your book and how can they harm a company and how do you avoid them?
1: That is an amazing question, especially for what is going on and continues to go on right now. So oftentimes we think about They are, we think about racism and we think about microaggressions. Microaggressions are small little things that we might say or do unintentionally that can be offensive. So for example, um, if you are, and I've experienced myself sitting in a meeting and people are introducing other people and saying, "Um, Mark Kramer, he is the president of our organization. He's been here for 15 years. We have Joe Smith, he is the vice president. He just started about three months ago. Here's Alyssa Carpenter, she came back from maternity leave, she just had a baby two months ago. Everybody else, you said their name, their title, how long they've been with the organization, and skipped to me and I've had a baby and I'm on maternity leave. Those are little microaggressions that you might not think about as you're introducing that person, but that person myself very much picks up on it. We're offended by what you're saying. I've had people been introduced as, oh, they play basketball in college. Everybody else has a title and tenure and their accomplishments, and oh, they play basketball in college. Um, I've had to work with organizations they are using different phrases as an individual that they weren't offended by, um, for example, the word "redneck" of "I am, I am this," and then other people are offended by the phrase or statement. So there are small things that we say, we do, um, we call on in terms of people being included in different groups that can have a major, major impact in organizations over time.
0: Yeah, uh, but sometimes, like when you mentioned about the basketball, or mention how long somebody's in, I, I think most people aren't thinking about because they're thinking it's just a good way for people to remember other people. I mean, I think most of us are bad at remembering names. And so having, you know, uh, labels or telling a little bit about somebody, but maybe, I guess, maybe you want to just have people go around the room and tell a little bit about themselves. Maybe that's a better approach.
1: You can do it that way, or even just be consistent. You're going to say for everybody at that table, it is their name, it is their title, and that's it, right? And use their, if they are a doctor use their, their professional title, whatever they choose to go by. I've seen that as well as eliminating titles for certain people and keeping it for others. So just being aware of who's in the room, how they want to be introduced and even asking them before the meeting, there's nothing wrong with that. I'd rather be asked how I want to be introduced than somebody to assume um, how I want to be and then keep it consistent.
0: So you write uh, write that the adage treating people as you want to be treated may not be the best course of action. Can you explain that?
1: We're always grown up. And I was saying before, I have a 7 and 10-year-old of this phrase, treat others the way that they want to be treated. And even as we're thinking about times right now, I, I really, I think that phrase is a little bit outdated. And it's more of treat others the way they want to be treated, not how we want to be treated. Um, Even thinking about something as simple as praise. Um, When you're thinking about your employees, asking them how do you like to seek praise? I personally do not like to be called out in a large setting of, Alyssa was great, this was awesome. Just send me a note, just say thank you and I'm good. Um, It shows that you're listening, that you care and that you're giving people the attention that they need. So really understanding and identifying and asking certain questions and getting to know people to navigate and understand how they want to be treated. Because it's not about you always. Um, It's about other people and the environment that you're in.
0: Do you think people become overly sensitive about things? And is this just the way it is now?
1: In terms of the phrase?
0: Yeah, I mean, you know, I think uh, the older people uh, who grew up with, say, people from World War II managing them, and now you're uh, the people who are now in the leadership roles or in a lot of re- leadership roles are now used to, um, that every kid has to get a trophy to feel good about themselves. And so I think that there's been kind of um, uh, a not a, there's no more kind of like a balance. It seems that to a lot of people, people become overly sensitive to things. So do you find that's the case or just the people are now voicing their opinion more about how they feel about things that so they always felt that way, but they just kept it to them themselves.
1: And I think it's a good question. It, it can be taken obviously several different ways. In terms of what we're seeing in the last couple of weeks, I, I so I I consider myself somebody of privilege, being a white female. I consider myself somebody of privilege, and. In situations where you may have been offended before, if you are a minority and you're thinking, I I might not have a voice, do I say this? Is this okay for me to say? And if you're speaking to somebody of privilege, they might not know how to address it or have those conversations. And that goes back to allyship. And it's important for for especially the the majority to really stand up and work for and learn how to be allies with um, minorities. So I think people want to say it. They're nervous to say it. How do I say it? We've seen things happen because people are trying to speak up. It's very, very scary um, to do that. In terms of getting rewards and trophies, that's things I think is evolving. And, you know, just thinking about things from anybody's childhood, it's what you're used to. So when that doesn't happen, you're confused and you want to know why. Um, But as an organization, it's still important to recognize and say thank you to people for their work done. Now, maybe it's not a trophy every time, or maybe it's not a bonus or whatever the case may be, but a simple thank you and a card or something um, to acknowledge people's hard work, I think is important. And we, that's where the I think there's a lot of cause of contention of of somebody might say, well, that's just their job. They have to do it anyway. But maybe you realize that project took them much longer than you anticipated it being. There was a lot more resources and a lot more things involved or even ask those questions. So I still think it's important to acknowledge people for their work.
0: By the way, those of you who have questions, uh, just type them in chat and I ask those questions as you uh, present them. So don't be hesitant about asking questions in chat. I will read them. Uh, to Elisa, and uh, she'll be glad to answer them for you. If you offended someone in a in front of a group, and you're giving the benefit of doubt that, that was unintentional, how do you let the person know that you were still offended?
1: So, if you've offended someone,
0: if if I if I uh, if I've offended you, and you know me, you know it was unintentional, but you're still offended, and I did it in front of this group, how do you let me know in in a, a constructive way? And also, maybe I need to go in front of that group and apologize to you for saying it, because apologizing to you privately may not be enough.
1: And but I think if, if I've offended you, and I talk very clearly in the book about times I have offended people and unintentionally, the big overarching thing when we think about it is the intent of our message and our actions may not be the impact in which they make. And to acknowledge that is very, very important. So if you, if I've offended you, I would hope not in that meeting, you would come up to me or whomever to have a conversation, even though you're giving me the benefit of the doubt. That's just the mindset that you're having during the conversation. Even though you're giving me the benefit of the doubt, doesn't mean that we shouldn't have a conversation and you shouldn't address the issue. Um, because what will happen, and that goes with microaggressions, right? We see them, and they're little bits and pieces, and then you're like, I've had enough. You know, you've been saying this all the time. If we're continuing to have these conversations and educating, um, it's very important. But coming in with a mindset that they're, they have good intention that wasn't really the intent of that message, and using I statements, and I was offended, I feel and ask you know what would be the best course of action how do you think that i should proceed should they go um, in, in in front of the group and say something maybe they were the only one that was offended you know continue to have it an, and leave that dialogue open too for that other person to answer those questions right and come at it if if I've offended you not attacking me, um, and make it a dialogue, right. And have this two-way conversation with the individual and state the facts and offer suggestions when working with them and find a neutral location too, right. Me sitting in your office in the chair and then you up here saying you've offended me, right. Maybe it's a walking meeting, standing meeting, something where you feel like you're actually genuinely having a conversation.
0: I was once running an organization. We had a, a group meeting and, uh, my office manager pulled me aside and said, hey, I think you offended so-and-so and here's what you did. And I, I thought that was great that she told me and I actually gathered all the people back up in the room and, and, and apologized to everybody for that. How do you go about telling somebody when you've noticed that they've offended somebody and the person doesn't bring it up, but you kind of think like there might've been other people offended in the room. They're just afraid to speak up. How do you go about doing that?
1: Yeah, and I think that's what a lot is happening now and thinking about allyship. So I think it's wonderful to speak up um, in that situation, but we're also making the assumption that somebody else was offended. So having even one-on-one conversations with someone and say, I noticed this, did this offend you? Did this bother you? Especially if you're in a position where you already have a relationship with someone you're um, in a leadership role, because maybe that person genuinely wasn't offended um, by that and you've brought something up that, just is not you know offensive in any type of way it's when you have these statements it's about you how you feel in that situation. I was offended by this I think that this comment was out of line um, not I think this other person feels this way I that's my approach is, is having that conversation about your feelings um, towards the situation and how you saw it as an injustice or as an incorrect statement
0: um. Based on your book, you have a recommended uh, recommended process for handling uncomfortable conversations. Can you please tell us briefly about this process? Walk us through it.
1: Sure. Um, I think it first starts, so you might be in the situation where somebody has offended you. And I talked um, about being really earlier on in my career. And one of my supervisors saying to me that my face looked like the map of Jerusalem. This is in the middle of a meeting. And I was Early on in my career, I didn't know what to say, I didn't know what to do, so I, I didn't um, do anything about it. And since, I've been in other situations where things have happened, and I think a large part of it, too, is taking time. The first step, really, is taking time to process what, what happened, right? What's going on? I think if we jump the gun um, and just start having these conversations right away, we might have been able to process what happened, what's going on, how can I come with this with a clear mindset? Assuming the best intentions, as what we just talked about before, and then finding that neutral location, I think, is crucial. Again, stating those facts, right? I feel this way, I see this way, along with your feelings. Um, When people have something tangible to go off of, it's much easier, Not, um, not general you know, you say all the time, or during those meetings, you're just so mean, you're so rude. That's not that helpful. What particular statement or phrase was said? What did somebody do that was very offensive? If we're not aware of the specific action, it's very difficult to change it. And that's where that courage kind of comes in because it's difficult to have those conversations or those difficult conversations. But if we don't have them, the person on the other end, we can't expect to change or adjust because they don't know what they've said or done is offensive in any way. Uh, being empathetic and offering suggestions is also very crucial it's difficult to also be on the other side of the conversation especially when you know someone that's not the intent of what they're doing they're really trying um, to come at the conversation from from a positive light from a different direction so coming at it and being empathetic that this might be very difficult and listening is a large part of it as well right what what are they saying how are they feeling and it's not I'm sorry if you feel that way I'm sorry if this was a situation. It's not an if, it's a that. I'm sorry that you feel that way. Changing those languages and, and being aware of the words that you use and not discrediting somebody's feelings.
0: How do you deal with the bully boss?
1: Oh man, I have a whole chapter actually on toxic colleagues, on toxic coworkers. Uh, bullying can come from so many different directions and show up in different ways. A bully could be somebody who's not giving you the space and voice to be heard. A bully can be somebody who's just constantly discrediting your work. Um, I think the first part is starting with a conversation, and I see it often now too in virtual spaces. Is people don't know how to, we don't know how to handle passive aggressive, especially during. Um, email communication, right? You don't know somebody's tone, you don't know what's happening. Um, I do think it always starts with a conversation and saying that I feel this way. Again, you can escalate all these things. If your organization has a human resource department and you feel um, threatened in any type of way, you don't think you'll be able to move up in the organization, it's very much impeding your work. And these are things to ask yourself too before starting these conversations. Maybe things don't need to be addressed. Maybe it's a, a colleague in a different department you rarely work with. Can you not work with them and do something else? By having these conversations determine how, how, why do I need to have this conversation? Does it impact the way in which I will work? Um, but I think you you need to start with saying how you feel um, about what happened and be very, very clear. They might not even be aware of it. And be aware too that some people are just not gonna change, right, Mark? I mean, people are. <laughs> some Where's people are on? not going you know, to change and anything that you say or do and people have been in the field for a long time and experiences won't um, won't change. So don't think because of what you said or did did not create change means that you've failed. Um, you've spoken up and you've done what you can and you've escalated it when need be.
0: Uh, what's the best way to share an idea? You know, you've got something percolating in your head, you wanna go and share it with your colleagues, and, but also you're kind of afraid of, uh, of either looking bad or looking stupid, or you're also looking maybe to protect the idea because you're thinking, geez, I can really get some good points here. How do I go about making sure I still kind of remain some ownership? So those three things, what's your suggestion on that?
1: I don't think there's a best way per se to share a specific idea. I don't think there's a one and done. I have to share this idea this way. Think about who you're trying to share the idea to and what you need to get buy-in for that particular idea. And to me, that comes down to influencing. So if you're working with colleagues and you know they need data, they need facts, they need to know that because of this idea, we're going to really increase our productivity, increase our profitability by 30% and you have the data to prove it that might be the way that you share this idea of the value of your idea. Maybe, and people tend to gravitate towards stories of, I had a client in the past and this is you know, what worked for them and this is why, and you know get that that, that visceral feeling that this is a great, um, great thing to share and this will have real impact within the organization. So think about how you're going to influence people in that space. Um, in terms of you know, not, people not taking your idea, that scene too. Um, sometimes, you know, if you share an idea ahead of time with with somebody one on one, and they can go into a meeting and say, you know, I had this idea, and you're in that particular meeting, you can definitely not call out the situation, but ask questions about that particular idea. Share. In my previous organization, we also did this, and this is what I'm thinking about. Or thank you, Mark, for sharing the idea that we discussed earlier today. Um, it might happen that people are, you know, consistently sharing your idea, but think about who you're sharing that idea to and how it can be influenced um, within the organization.
0: Some organizations, I've worked in them, where they take offense when you bring up other organizations say, well, here's what they did in other organization seemed to work very effectively. And it's like, well, that's not how we do things here. They're not even open uh, to those ideas from other organizations, even when the other organizations are spectacularly successful organizations. Uh, how do you become an ally to someone whose ideas you agree with, but it goes against your boss's or the business leader's vision without hurting your own standing uh, in it uh, and becomes controversial? How do you do that?
1: So I think depends what, you know, if you're talking about something that is truly offensive, is a microaggression, is racist, um, is that I should mean, not be said.
0: I'm talking about like, you know, uh, they have a, a marketing idea, or a new product that, they're, that they want to offer. And somebody says, you know, I don't think it's really a good idea to do it. And they're, and they're actually confronting the, the boss, whether it's their manager or the ultimate boss of the whole business. And you agree with them, but you're kind of afraid to ally yourself with them for being painted by the same brush as them because you're afraid of, well, what happens to my own standing in yeah. this business? You know, How do I align myself and let my feelings be known without hurting myself politically in the organization.
1: Yeah. And I think that even could go back to what we were talking about before in terms of influencing. And maybe it's not the whole idea you agree with, maybe it's part of the idea that you agree with. Maybe you have a story or an experience that you can share about why that idea can work, or some knowledge or facts about why that idea can work. Maybe you can give them some curveball questions of some, you know, some easy questions of oh, you know, remember when we did this and this worked really well? That might be helpful. Can you share this? Or how do you feel about this? Help them in that type of way. And you continue to to inch it off. It shouldn't be an argument of no, their idea is great. You, my leader, are the worst, right? You want to be able to support them in a way that is helpful to them and helpful to the organization's bottom line. So if you're able to make that connection, especially in that space, provide examples, provide resources, um, you can't go wrong um, in those situations
0: um how many times have you heard a big organization that on one hand doesn't know what the other hand is doing this often um a company a lot of money and could antagonize both sides that might have been working on a similar project how do you stop that and derive a positive outcome
1: it happens all the time um it happens all the time in terms of cross-team collaboration and people think what is collaboration why am i you know not working together The key to me, at least I see it as an organization can't function without other departments and without other people. You'd be very hard pressed to find one person who could run everything without support or resources in any type of way. Um, Being open with, with communication and really even having, and I've worked with organizations to create documents and strategies and town hall meetings of what is going on, what are our big projects people can't help and support you if they don't know what's going on because we don't know the questions to ask because we don't know what's happening. Um, just even having a conversation yesterday, right now I think a lot of my human resource colleagues are, are hearing from other people, I didn't realize what you did, thank you so much for all, for all that you're doing, especially working remotely, They're the, the glue that really holds a lot of the, the pieces together. So being very open about the the projects that you have, which can be difficult, right? We think about job security, we're nervous by sharing this information, but your project, your team, whatever the case may be, might not be the best it can be without the support of other people. So finding ways to communicate and avenues and allies within different parts of the organization to share what you're working on.
0: In the book you talk about, when can the word collaboration be perceived as a negative?
1: All the time. (laughs) You know, at this point, collaboration is a buzzword or more for let's collaborate or let's partner, let me give you all of the work, right? It's that we don't know what it means and we're overusing it. But collaboration is really a collaboration, a partnership, a mutually beneficial space that we can be in. Especially as leaders, it's so important to not just talk, it's about walking the walk and showing and modeling what you mean. When you say collaboration, Is it look like how you collaborate with this other department? What does this look like? How do we do it? Um, Working with other organizations and clients, collaboration can even be having people from other teams come and sit on your meetings and give feedback and give suggestions and then you do the same so you know what's going on so you can more effectively collaborate and work together. But collaboration can sometimes be that word that goes back to, I just get more work now.
0: (laughs) Sure, absolutely. Uh, what's the best way to run a meeting that only the people who are really involved uh, with it uh, should be there and they should attend and others who shouldn't be there aren't offended?
1: Yeah, and I talk about this in the book too, about being, again, I said, Includer, my number one strength. It's something that I do all the time. I have created so many meetings where there were, early on in my career, there were too many people. There were too many people in the room who didn't have a say. And it's important to really think about who is a touch point on this project right now Or potentially in the future, but with that future, can the the supervisor or the overhead get that information and then communicate and disseminate that information now? So if you're having a meeting about a specific project or assignment, think about who will have touch points and when, and who needs to be in this space to have a conversation with who can be in an email and get the content and get that information and the people that are in the room, are you providing them and make sure you're providing them with the information to disseminate that information to other people. So if the people are in the room have touch points to other people and you've clearly given them information to disseminate, you don't need all the other people in the room as well. So be very clear on who has institution, institutional knowledge that can very be very helpful. Um, Within the organization, who's a key decision maker who can have buy in, who can disseminate the information? So be very clear on who is here, and if they're not here, would we have to cancel, reschedule, or not have this meeting?
0: What's the best way to cut someone off who's going on too long without being rude?
1: (laughs) Yeah, it's tough because it's also what's too long, right? Is it because you're just bored and you don't feel like hearing anymore? Is it a one on one conversation? But I think I've I've even, and there's a story, there's a few stories in the book too, about people who realize that they were going on too long, where their colleagues have came up to them after meetings and just said, you know, you, you're going on and not giving other people the chance to speak. And now those particular colleagues are taking that breath before they go to the meeting and realizing, okay, I'm going to let three people, almost challenging themselves, I'm going to let three people talk before I raise my hand, or I'm going to let one person talk before they do that. If somebody has gone on too long and completely off tangent, I think it's okay as a leader within that group to say, thank you so much for sharing. We're going to table that for now. Mark, it's your turn. Would you mind sharing? Or Alyssa, we'll bring that up at the next meeting. Thank you for sharing. There are ways to do it like that, even using simple phrases that are helpful. But don't be afraid to have a conversation with someone afterwards and just say, I think you're monopolizing the conversation a little bit. I feel I didn't get my voice heard but you have to recognize the relationship with you have someone so it's not just go up to anybody um and then make sure it's a conversation where you're not attacking that person for speaking and sharing their voice
0: i think you might have mentioned this in your book and uh, and i often do this but then i found somebody found this objectionable Oh, uh, uh, if everybody hasn't had their say in a small group i'll i'll go around the room and say do you have any comment do you have any comment and then somebody pointed out to me that I don't wanna be put on the spot. Don't ask me if I have a comment. I know you're trying to make sure that everybody has their say, but I'll raise my hand. And I stopped doing that after that. Here, I thought I was doing something good, but then some people found that very objectionable because it put them on the spot.
1: It does put people on the spot a little bit, but I very much appreciate where you're coming from. And I've been in situations where people do it as well. I don't think there's anything per se wrong with that. Um, I think it's tough for people on the spot to brainstorm or come up with ideas. If you share that information ahead of time, and I'm really big on brainstorming, so not only you know giving the agenda ahead of time is very helpful in a meeting. That way, if you're normally afraid to share ideas, you know you want to speak up, but you don't know how, you can look through that agenda and say, you know what, but, um, exercise two, I, I know this topic, I can share it, then you can come in and be confident. As a leader, when you're sharing it and even asking people ahead of time, we're going to be brainstorming this, you know, come in with three ideas that you're open to sharing on this particular topic. I think at that point, if you set the tone with the group and said, I- I'm going to ask for these three ideas versus people are like, I-, I don't have anything. You know, you just told me about this five seconds ago and I yeah. haven't had the time to process it because a lot of people need that time and space. So it's about finding that kind of medium ground of calling on people is wonderful, but giving them the space and time to be able to think through what you've asked.
0: Excellent point. Uh, What's a proper way to leverage virtual teams in terms of meetings and work product, especially when older workers are used to going to an office and younger workers are happy to work from home or a coffee shop?
1: So what's interesting about virtual spaces is I think one, it humanizes us a little bit. You see all these silly things in the background of my house. So I think it gives you the opportunity to get to know people a little bit better. Um, if you or your organization is using Zoom, the breakout room function I think is wonderful to have those small group conversations. It gives you the chance to talk to people you might not otherwise talk to within a group. The key to is, as I think, we're talking about Crisis work from home, in my opinion, versus regular work from home. We have all these other distractions and all these other things happening. So, as a leader, even reaching out to people and saying, you know, what resources do you need that you don't have? Are there any trainings or anything that I can help you with? We need to make sure people are comfortable. So, specifically, people who had a different device. Let's say they had a desktop at their at their work desk. And now they have a laptop they didn't even know how to turn on before. And now they're trying to find all these functions and they're still trying to work through it. Making sure everybody is comfortable and being able to provide those resources. And that's where that reverse mentoring um, can really come in.
0: How do you make sure that people don't feel isolated when they're working remotely? And this is really a problem since uh, COVID has hit. Uh, I hear even younger people feel like, oh my god, I'm just trapped in my house, especially the people who were living in New York. Uh, During this period of time and and are just now getting out. But how do you make people feel that they're not isolated and that they're part of the team because there's a whole group that's working in headquarters or wherever
1: Isolation and burnout is huge. I just wrote um, an article that came out yesterday uh, yesterday actually on um, Burnout and the importance of of really gauging and and helping employees because we feel so connected to our devices at this time. Um, with isolation is reaching out to people. How are you? What can I help you with? How's your day? If you want to, you can set up um, happy hours or, or different conversations. But it's very easy to be isolated in this space. And by no means does Zoom make up for that in-person interaction that you have. Um, you can do like game night I've seen so many times or bring your pet to work day or your trial. Mm-hmm. Find different ways that you can do that. But that doesn't mean that you shouldn't, as a leader, still reach out one on one. And that could be scheduling 15-minute really quick meetings of how are you, what do you need, what are you doing for self-care, what can I provide for you? So keeping that constant connection so people don't feel like they're on an island. And it's easier to do it when you've already established that relationship and that rapport before um, we went remote.
0: So let's go back to about toxic people. Uh, You have uh, almost a whole section on this thing in your book. What if what if the person's a high performer? How do you deal with that?
1: If that person is a high performer and toxic?
0: Yeah, because there are people like that, especially in sales, uh, that they, or they're yeah. brilliant in research, but they're really toxic and they actually uh, chase people off. Do you keep that person? Do you have them work on their own and put them somewhere else because they're great at sales or they're are brilliant and come up with things? I mean. In a way, Steve Jobs is a very toxic person. Everything you read about him wasn't that he was a great guy, uh, but he was a brilliant guy and people could understand that.
1: It That's one of the toughest situations that I see all the time is because that person is bringing in money or resources or has this talent that maybe other people don't have. But toxicity breeds toxicity. Um, and I've talked about it even in my book in terms of not being a toxic person then owning up to Somebody was coming around and wanting to get gossip and I wouldn't buy in and then I did. It's important to really think about, is that person's work and value within the organization monetarily more so important to your organization than the toxicity in which they're leaving? Because one toxic person truthfully can diminish the quality of work in so many other people. So if they weren't in your organization, would other people be stepping up? Are there other opportunities for other people? And as much as we say, you know, maybe you think you're not replaceable. Pe- people are um, to some extent. So, what knowledge and skills and experience do they have that other people might be able to have? Because we don't want to just put their work onto other people and acknowledge a toxicity and not do anything about it. We know that it's there, so we're going to give them less work because they're toxic, and then give everyone else their work um, because they're providing that environment. So, I encourage you to take that step back and think about what impact they're leaving on the organization that is much greater than the potential value you see right at this moment.
0: I followed the documentary on Michael Jordan that just came out, and he sounded like a really toxic leader, and yet they managed to win six championships with him. It sounded like that they, what they brought in was people to balance him out that interacted with the other people. I mean, they all had enormous respect for his skills, but it actually took him seven years to win his first championship and everything you read about him or heard about him, there wasn't anything that anybody really said was great except that he was a great player. So how do you find the right people to come in and kind of balance that amazingly talented person out and still keep really good people focused and wanting to do good for the organization?
1: Even taking the reflection and saying, who's been working with this individual that we see as a quality partnership? Where are they toxic? And sometimes, quite honestly, people don't know that they're they're toxic. You know, people, we're not really self-aware when we're being toxic and not intentionally trying to harm and be rude to others. So even doing a 360, getting feedback, um, doing that internal reflection yourself, getting them a coach, there are ways to hopefully ease them out of some type of toxicity that they had, but see where they might need partners. What are areas that they're lacking? Are they the person who comes up with all of the creative ideas and they're just really bad and toxic in pitch meetings with other people? Is there somebody you can partner with that has built that relationship with them that can bring their ideas to life um, where they're then shifting responsibilities around?
0: So as we're winding up here, I wanted to know what other books do you suggest that people read besides your book, which everybody should <laughs> Uh what other books uh, and podcasts, what do you listen to that helps you um, your leaders and for them to be better managers and leaders of all ages. What, yeah. Any recommendations?
1: One of my favorite podcasts is Work Life. Um, so Adam Grant's podcast is a wonderful resource. If you're looking for additional information in terms of generations, uh, The Remix is a really good book, Humans 2.0. just And these came out last year. Um, Strength-Based Leadership is also great, and strength finder, which gives you the results, too. I actually also, on my website, with everything going on, created a whole list. There's probably about 30 to 40 books on it of anti-racism resources um, involved in inclusivity and different podcasts. Um, 1619, there's a few NPR and New York Times podcasts, as well. So if that's a space that you're interested in learning more, I have a lot of resources um, on my website for
0: that, and, too. Okay, so on your website. So we'll yeah. make sure... Uh, that we send it out. So my last question here, and, and if any of you have a question, please uh, put it on chat. Uh, I know I've asked a lot of questions, so I may have covered everything that you wanted to ask. Uh, what do you think leadership's gonna look like in the next 10 years? How, how, what, what changes do you think are gonna happen with people at the top that are, are, are gonna be more inclusive, better managers, and and organizations are gonna even be more successful.
1: What I would like to see is this be used as a catalyst for change. Um, So when I'm talking about even looking at being able to see people's spaces and where they're coming from, it breaks down these barriers and creates this more human element. Oftentimes you go to work, you have your suit, your tie or whatever you have and you are separating that personal and professional space. So being able to create these more inclusive spaces to have these conversations. We're talking a lot about diversity and the importance of diversity and you see so many statements by organizations of, you know, we support diversity, Black Lives Matter, all of these things they're saying, but they haven't done anything and you look at their websites and it's just a sea of white people or their, their boards and all of these things. We have to be aware of the message that we're sending and the information that we have. So what I would like to see is actual real change of hiring more diverse people, having and creating spaces where we're having these inclusive conversations. So it's not just about saying, it's a lot of doing. And I'm hoping in the next decade, we will see much more diverse leadership, much more diverse hires, diversity of thought, people willing um, to change the status quo.
0: Well, you know, it's funny uh, you should say that as uh, we're closing on. Oh, don't you think that every short, uh, short, ever shortening attention span is a problem in business? That's I funny.
1: do. It's mm-hmm. right. What, what's difficult is that the education system has, has shifted, right? Dramatically, even from when I went, went to school, we're talking about the SATs used to take information and then have you apply it. And now it's strictly, you know, learning a lot of information for the test. You are not taught, there's so many things going on, games. Uh, Now we have um, TikTok. It has a very short limit of videos. So we're not being taught to train our brains to have things for for a longer attention span. What I've seen a lot for businesses is you might see the delineation of uh, TL, semicolon, DR. So too long, didn't read. I've seen a lot of handbooks. They'll have all of the information from the handbook and pull out specific sentences and phrases and put that at the top of certain sections of, this is the most important information you have. Putting bullet points on emails versus paragraphs and paragraphs. So thinking creatively how you can work with that attention span while giving the information and knowledge that you have and asking your younger employees, what is the best way for you to get that content? Do you need a video of me walking you through this? But it is difficult.
0: Well, you are going. You know, the uh, Harvard studies have shown that the more diverse your organization is, both at all levels, including the board and the C-suite, the greater return on investment. And, and it's just common sense, right? I mean, it just makes perfect sense that that would be the case. And I have to say, now that I've been watching our mayor here in Philadelphia, I'm amazed we've never had a woman mayor in Philadelphia. Uh, And yet so many of the major cities now have had women mayors. And that uh, still in 2020, we still haven't had a a woman present. But I think that's like around the corner. If not this, obviously this time around, it will certainly happen. Well, Alisa, thank you so much for uh, being here with us today. We hope you have a great rest of your day. And uh, we'll make sure people get to know Uh, how to get your book.
1: No, thank you so much. (laughs) Enjoy the rest of your day, everyone. Thank you for taking the time.
0: Okay, have a great day. Take care. Bye. Bye Bye-bye.